the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In the books of Matthew, Mark and Luke, those authors slowly but surely reveal a little bit more about who Jesus is page by page, word by word, chapter by chapter. They don't really come out and say from the very, very get go that Jesus is God. They want the audience to kind of figure that out as they go through the book, kind of slowly but surely discovering just who Jesus is and just what Jesus is doing. But the book of John is different. John doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to saying who Jesus is. He doesn't delay the result. He immediately says who Jesus is. He says the word, which the word is a phrase he used to refer to Jesus. He says that the word is from the beginning. He was present at the moment of creation and nothing that came into being came into being apart from him. There's nothing in existence apart from Jesus. Jesus is eternal. He simply always has been. And it's no coincidence that John uses those three words in the beginning, just like that book of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. Something is happening here that is unseen in all of creation. Something completely new, something no one saw coming is about to come. It's never happened before. It's like a new beginning. Not only does it say the word is from the beginning, he says the word is with God, implying that the word Jesus is distinct from God. He's with God. He's alongside God. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father. Yet at the same time, he's distinct from God. But then he also says the word was God. He's distinct from God, yet he is God. Notice that John does not say that Jesus was a God, as if Jesus is somehow a different God than God the Father. He doesn't say that Jesus is a lower God in the hierarchy. He says that Jesus truly is God. The Word was God, and the Word still is God. Yet in some way, in a way that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around it, Jesus is still distinct from God. This is what Christians believe. Jesus is eternal. He rules and reigns alongside God. And if you don't believe that Jesus truly is the son of God, the word was God and the word is God. If you don't believe that, then you can't call yourself a Christian. And while every single week we proclaim this as Christians, every single week we proclaim that Jesus is God here at Prairie View Christian Church around Christmas time, we celebrate an even more specific aspect of who Jesus is, of what it is that Jesus has done. Around Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came into the world. We celebrate that, as John said, Jesus came into the world as life and light, life into a world of death, light into a world of darkness. If you've been in the church for long, you might hear this idea of Jesus coming into the world as the incarnation. That's the word we often use for this whole idea. But what exactly makes the incarnation what it is? Well, we preach and we teach and scripture teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. 
born to Mary through the Holy Spirit. He was fully human in every sense of the word. Jesus got hungry, just like we do. Jesus got tired, just like we do. He laughed at jokes and he cried at tragedies, just like we do. Jesus faced temptation, just like we do. He lived a human life, just like we do. He died a human death, just like we will, unless he comes back first. The authors of Scripture emphasize the humanity of Jesus. We read passages like Hebrews chapter chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of flesh and blood. We jump forward to verse 17, where the author says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was made like us in every respect. In the incarnation, we read passages like first John chapter one, verses one through three, where John emphasizes the humanity of Jesus to those who might doubt it. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So over and over again, John says, Jesus, the one who we saw, the one who we touched, the one who we heard, he truly was God in the flesh. It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't a fake. He truly was God walking amongst us. We saw him. We touched him. He was made manifest to us. And yet, even though Jesus was fully human, even though he faced temptation, he didn't give in like we so often do. He didn't sin like we so often do. Even though he was fully human, he was fully God all at the same time. Now, This all sounds like pretty standard stuff that you'll hear at most doctrinally sound churches this time of year. Most churches this time of year will preach on the incarnation about how Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that's important. But over the next several weeks, I'd like to look at a question that maybe we don't think about quite as much when it comes to the incarnation. And that question is, why? Why did Jesus come? What makes the incarnation so important? Why did it happen the way it did? And what was the reason that it happened in the first place? So this month, we're going to take four sermons to answer this question, looking at four different reasons why Jesus came. Three of those reasons are going to be on Sunday morning. We have today and then next week and then the third week, the 21st. And then our fourth and final reason will be at our 5 p.m. Christmas Eve service. But before we answer that question, I'd ask that you open your Bibles to John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. That'll be located on page 758. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today and feel free to take that home with you. But before we read this passage, before we get into this question, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that you came and lived amongst us. God, we're grateful that We can relate to your son, Jesus, because we know that 
He's lived a human life just like we live human lives. We know that he faced temptation. We know that he faced pain. We know that he faced suffering. And God, if nothing else, as we face those things, it's comforting to know that you know what it's like. You know what it's like to hurt. You know what it's like to feel. You're not just some distant, removed God who keeps us at arm's length. You got your hands dirty and lived amongst us. And God, we're grateful for that. And I pray that we can be reminded over the next several weeks of the incredible reasons why you came. I pray that it will humble us. I pray that it will convict us. I pray that it will encourage us to have more faith in you every single day. God, be with us this morning as we explore your word. Be with us in the coming weeks as well. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what God is like? Seriously, you ever wondered what God is like? What does God look like? What does God sound like? I'm sure lots of us have asked that question in our minds before. I think most people probably do at one point or another in their lives. Now, many of us have these ideas of God that are formed in our minds through what we're taught. Either it's positive or it's negative sometimes. Maybe we have an idea of what God is like through positive or negative experiences. The way certain people treat us in a good way or in a bad way. Maybe we have certain beliefs that we've formed over time, independent of anyone else, and those things inform the pictures in our minds of what God is like. Well, I have a few pictures I'd like to show up on the screen of some of those typical images of what we often view God as. Number one, we're often guilty of viewing God as Santa Claus, especially this time of year. Santa Claus is great. Santa Claus is important. But Santa Claus and God are not really all that comparable. They're Santa. We often picture God as though he's someone who gives gifts to those who are nice and he gives coal to those who are naughty. And it's just that simple. That's how God works. Maybe we don't view God like Santa. Maybe we view God like a different old man with a beard. Maybe we view God like he's Gandalf. He's just some old, bizarre man who has a big, long beard. He lives somewhere far away. We can't really understand him. He speaks in these weird phrases and terms that don't make any sense. But that's just what we picture God as. Okay? Maybe we don't picture God as Santa or Gandalf. Maybe we picture God as a police officer. We picture God as the police officer who just patrols creation, making sure that everyone follows the rules, making sure that the rules are enforced and they aren't broken. Closely related to the police officer, maybe we picture God as nothing more than an angry judge. And he exists to patrol creation and make sure that those who do break the rules face the proper punishment. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, from the police officer or the judge, maybe we picture God like a hippie. God doesn't really care about rules. He doesn't care about punishment or justice or judgment or any of that kind of stuff. God is a lot more chill than that. He's more just into peace and love and harmony, live and let live. Maybe you picture God like a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's something that you can just keep up your sleeve when you find yourself in a bind. And then you can put him back for when you need him in the future. Maybe if you're more cynical of your views of God, maybe you have an image of a crutch. God is simply a crutch 
for those who can't come to grips with the fact that their lives are meaningless. So they say they believe in God to try and find some kind of purpose. Maybe you view God as a crutch for those who aren't strong enough to handle suffering and hardship on their own. Or maybe you picture God like our last picture. God is just an imaginary friend that makes no sense whatsoever, who's equivalent to the idea of a flying spaghetti monster. You might as well believe in a flying spaghetti monster if you're going to believe in God. The point is that we all have these questions of what God is like, what he looks like. If only we could meet him, if only we could truly encounter him and find out for sure what he's really like. Well, there's actually a lot of people in the Old Testament who, in one sense or another, encountered God. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham sees three messengers sent from God. And these three messengers come and they have a meal together. And the messengers remind Abraham that God's promise that Sarah is going to have a baby, that promise still stands, even though Sarah is really, really old. Thanks for taking down the flying spaghetti monster. Probably would have been a distraction if it stayed up forever. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. He's going to meet Esau, his brother, and he's not really sure how Esau is going to treat him because Jacob hasn't always been the best brother. But then he meets this wrestler. He has this wrestling match for hours and hours and hours. And then he realizes that he was wrestling with a messenger from God. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon is called to save Israel from the oppression under foreign people. And he has this vision of God. In 1 Samuel 3, Samuel has a vision of God. And God tells him everything that's going to happen to Eli's wicked family. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon has a vision of God. Solomon is taking over his father's kingdom. He's very young. He doesn't consider himself to be experienced or wise. And so when he sees God, he asks God for wisdom. Isaiah has a vision of God in his book, chapter 6, where he sees the throne room of God as God calls him to prophesy to God's people, to remind them that they truly are God's people, and to convict them of their sin. And while all of those stories of the messengers and the wrestling and the visions and all these incredible things, they're all pretty astounding. They're all pretty mind-blowing encounters with God. But the truth is, all of these stories, all of those instances, these people didn't truly, fully see God. They saw messengers. They saw visions. But they didn't actually look God in the face. The closest we get to someone actually seeing God in the Old Testament is Moses. It starts with a burning bush. Moses is called to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. But again, as incredible as that might have been, seeing a burning bush is not the same as seeing God. God's just speaking through the burning bush. Later, when Moses receives the law from God, he hears God's voice. But again, he doesn't actually get to see God, what God looks like. As God's glory guides the Israelites through the wilderness, he sees God's glory in the form of a cloud during the daytime or a pillar of fire at night. But again, it's not the same as seeing God. So after these incredible visions, Moses finally gets fed up and Moses finally makes a request. He says, God, I want to see you. Not a burning bush, 
I don't just want to hear your voice. I don't just want to see a cloud or a pillar of fire as great and as cool as those things have been. God, I want to see you. I want to look at you. We see the passage in Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses makes this request. He wants to see God and God humors him in a sense. But then God also says, you won't see my face. So not even Moses fully, truly gets to look at God. All these things in the Old Testament, these visions, these messengers, they can be referred to as theophanies. And a theophany is basically a vision where God has human physical features whether it's nostrils or hands or eyes. You can have a theophany where God has human emotional qualities, whether it's anger or sadness or regret. A theophany can be a vision of God doing human actions, like laying a plumb line in one of the prophets, or maybe even leading a flock of sheep. And again, as great as these theophanies are, as mind-blowing as these visions might have been, they fall short of incarnation. They're messengers. They're representations. They aren't truly incarnation. They aren't truly looking at God. Look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, that passage you opened up to. John continues, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So if you want to know what incarnation is, don't look at those Old Testament stories. If you don't want to know what the incarnation is, look at those words that John says in verse 14. The word became flesh. That's incarnation. The word became flesh. But again, that doesn't answer our question. Why did the word become flesh? Well, we see that in that passage, too. We see it when John says he, the word, Jesus, has made him known. The first reason why the incarnation occurred is that Jesus came in the flesh to reveal who God is. He came in the flesh to reveal who God is. Look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus, at the end of chapter 13, he gives some sobering news to the disciples. He talks about how they're going to abandon him, how he's going to be betrayed, how he's going to depart from their presence. 
And of course, the disciples are upset when they hear this. They're concerned. They've spent three years with Jesus. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. And now they're hearing that he's going to be betrayed and they're going to abandon him and he's not going to be with them anymore. They're obviously worried. But Jesus tries to encourage them. He says in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So as Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples, he says, guys, it's okay. Yes, I'm going away, but you're going to be with me one day. You're going to get to come where I am going. And they say, well, Jesus, that's great. But if we don't know where you're going, how are we going to meet you there? How are we going to go to these places that you have prepared for us? And Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, don't worry about finding the way. Don't worry about the route you're going to take or making sure you have a map or a GPS. You're missing the point. You've already found the way because I am the way. I'm the way to the Father. And so Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And that's a bold claim. It was a bold claim then. It's a bold claim now for Christians to say that the only way to have access to the Father is through Jesus. But that is what we proclaim. But as bold as that claim is, sometimes we skip over the bold claim in verse 7. We focus on John 14, 6. But just as bold as when Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, From now on, when you look at me, you're looking at God. You have known him and you have seen him. Moses didn't see him. Isaiah didn't see him. Abraham didn't see him. Solomon didn't see him. But you have. Because you looked at me. Let's pick up in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Apparently Philip just missed this entire conversation. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus reiterates what he just said when he says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Philip, Thomas, when you look at me, you're looking at God. That's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus came in the flesh to reveal who God is. D.A. Carson writes, do you want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. 
Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus. Study Jesus all the way to that wretched cross. Study Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Because he came in the flesh to reveal who God is. When Moses spoke to God on Mount Sinai, often when he would come down from speaking to God, he had to wear a veil over his face because his face shone so brightly and the Israelites couldn't even look at him. They thought it was so bright they couldn't stand to look at Moses's face. And so Moses started wearing a veil when he came down and he was done talking to God. He put the veil on when he was going back to speak to God. He'd take the veil off. And it was also the Israelites wouldn't have to look at this incredible light coming from Moses's face. Now, Paul hits on this idea of Moses's veil years later in Second Corinthians, chapter three, verses 16 through 18. And he ties it to Jesus. He says in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul makes it clear that those who trust in the law to justify themselves before God, those who trust in the law to save themselves, a veil lies over their hearts. They're not truly seeing the glory of God. When we're stuck in the rebellion and death of our sin, a veil lies over our hearts and we don't see the glory of God. And only when that veil is removed, only when we see the Lord, when we look Jesus in the face, only then can we say that we know God. And only then can we say that we have looked at God. And when that veil is removed and when we see Christ, when we look at God himself in the flesh, that leaves us changed forever. Paul says that seeing this glory transforms us little by little, one degree of glory to the next. When you look Jesus in the face and you see God, you do not leave unchanged. The way to See transformation in someone is not to enforce stricter rules or stiffer punishment. Transformation ultimately comes when the Holy Spirit removes the veil from our faces and we see the face of Jesus and see the glory of God. When Moses left the presence of God again, his face was shining so bright and all the Israelites could see him. That's why he had to have the veil. I pray that our faces might shine as well. Because of what we have seen. We look in the face of God when we look at Jesus. And I pray that our faces will shine so brightly that every single person around us will notice it. But I pray that those people who see it won't just ask us to wear a veil or won't just ask us to cover it up. I pray that those people would ask why our faces shine the way they do. In order that we might point them directly to Christ. My prayer is that as we behold the glory of God, as we look at Jesus, that it will change us forever. I pray that people might see our faces shining because of what we have seen and that will point them to Jesus, that will point them to that wretched cross 
that they might see his glory too. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came in the flesh to reveal who God is. So if you want to know what God is like, don't just picture Santa Claus or Gandalf or a get-out-of-jail-free card or a police officer or a judge or a crutch. Don't picture those things. Those things don't do God justice. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God looks like, look at the last places you might expect. Look at a manger. Look at a cross. Look at an empty tomb. Look at a body broken and a blood shed. Look at Jesus if you want to see God. Let's pray. Father, it's incredible to think that in some bizarre way that we can't even fully wrap our minds around, we have seen you because you manifested yourself in the flesh. When we have seen your son, we have seen you. And yet at the same time, your son is distinct from you. But God, I pray that as we consider the fact that you have allowed us to look upon your glory, that you have allowed us to see the face of your son, Jesus, fully man and fully God. I pray that will leave us changed. I pray that will leave us transformed. I pray that as we look upon you, as we look upon the manger, as we look upon the cross, as we look upon the empty tomb, as we consider what you've done for us, that you died on the cross to take the wrath that we deserve, to take the punishment that we deserve. God, I pray that we would leave transformed. I pray that our faces would shine, that those around us, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain and stress and anxiety, our faces will shine so brightly that people will notice that we might point them to that wretched cross, that we might point them to you. God, I pray that this Christmas season, as we see the symbols of Christmas, as we see crosses hanging on trees, as we see majors out in yards, we'll be reminded of just how glorious it is to look at the face of your son, Jesus. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a veil that lies over your heart. You cannot see the glory of God apart from Christ. So I pray that you'll make that decision this morning. There will be several of our elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you might have. I pray that that veil would be removed from your heart this morning and that you too would leave here changed.